Origin is a unique structure in, in the world of mental health and, and the world of mental health research. It's the only place in the world where we focus on clinical care, early intervention research and translation of that research as a main focus for our work. Focusing on young people is a deliberate strategy because the onset of most mental disorders occurs in this period between puberty and, and uh, the mid-twenties, mid to late-twenties and very few research programs have actually adopted that approach of focusing on emerging mental disorders in young people. Hi everybody <clears throat> and thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to our ChatSafe panel this morning. Um, so I'm Jo Robinson and I lead the Youth Suicide Prevention Research Group at Origin, which you've just heard a little bit about. I am also one of the Vice Presidents for IASP um, and I also sit on an advisory group around suicide and self-injury for Facebook. And we're very privileged to have a great team of minds here on the, on the, um, on the screen with us today just to talk about some of the new challenges, where we are and where we're at and what we know about the role of social media in suicide prevention, but also where we might go next and how we can use social media in, in our work in suicide prevention. So before I go any further, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands that I'm joining you here from today. So I'm in St Kilda in Melbourne, which is the lands of the Yalakut Willem, clan of the Boomerang of the Kulin, people of the Kulin Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to the traditional owners of the lands that others are joining us from here today and to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are, who are um, in our audience. So welcome everybody. And as I say, thanks so much for joining us. I'd also like to introduce you to our coach, my co-chair, Mark Senior from the University of Toronto, who will introduce himself and also introduce the rest of the panel. Over to you, Mark. Thanks so much, Joe. Um, as Joe says, I'm Mark Senior. I'm a psychiatrist at the University of Toronto uh, in Canada and also a suicide prevention researcher with an interest in media and suicide. And I was the lead author of the Canadian Psychiatric Association uh, Guidelines for Safe Reporting on Suicide. Sorry if my eyes look like I'm freezing a little bit, but hopefully this works. Um, first of all, I just I feel very honored to be doing the panel with Joe. Um, you know, as probably people know, and if they don't, they'll hear in a few minutes. Um, Joe led the ChatSafe guidelines, which are a really groundbreaking set of guidelines to try to help improve discourse in social media. Um, and we know that um, suicide-related discussions can be helpful and they can also be harmful depending on what the content is. And I think, um, you know, we have this new wild west of social media, which has now been around for a while. And part of what we have to figure out is how do we help make it the safest and best space possible? And hopefully in our discussion today, we'll be able to, uh, with our really distinguished panel, figure some of that out. Um, so please, I uh, just wanted to, to remind everybody, um, we'll try to monitor the discussion forum, but if you have burning questions as you go, please try to put them in the live Q&A. We'll do our best to answer them. Um, and now what I'd like to do is to turn things over to our panel. Um, and so uh, what I'm going to ask everybody uh, is, to, is to say a few words about yourself 
And then, you know, to share either a key issue that you have with regards to suicide and social media, what, what you think is important really to tackle on the space, or for those who are researchers, a surprising or, or highlight finding of your research. Uh, so why don't we start with uh, Dr. Louise Lasala. Lou, go ahead. Awesome. So thanks for having me, Joe and Mark. So yes, everyone, I'm Louise. Um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher um, on the ChatSafe team at Origin in Melbourne, at the Uni of Melbourne. Um, a surprise finding or something that I'd like to tackle today, I suppose, is really focusing on this proactive um, way we can use social media when it comes to suicide prevention. And the reason for that being that, you know, young people in our study tell us that they're kind of over the general mental health, general self-care information that they see on social media and really like learning new stuff and learning, you know, skills and tips that they didn't already know. So for me, I think that's a springboard into how can we use this space then um, to get that information out to them and to kind of, yeah, take it one step further than general self-care. Important. Thanks so much. Uh, Dr. Anna Lavis. Hi, thank you, Joe and Mark. So I'm an anthropologist at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Um, and my work, I kind of, there I lead various studies exploring lived experiences of mental ill health and distress with a particular focus on social media. So kind of on eating disorders content uh, and self-harm content and suicide content. And I guess my key thing that I kind of want to think about is the fact that often in these discussions, we focus a lot on very specific forms of content in quite a siloed way. And I think often we kind of assume harms where there may not be any, or at least there may, or in fact, there may be benefits. Um, and actually sometimes we therefore also overlook some harms that you know may be hidden or a bit more pernicious um, and I, I suppose therefore overall it's a kind of call for um, complexity and nuance and thinking about that there's always a context to content and that I, and I guess particularly that context there's always a person behind it so I guess that would be my thought such an issue because you know, complexity is sometimes lost on social media um, and uh, next, uh, Emily Unity, please. Em. Thanks so much. Hi, my name is Emily Unity. My pronouns are she, they. Um, I'm a youth lived experience advisor and peer worker. I'm also a young, queer and culturally diverse person lived experience of personal attempts at suicide and bereaving family and friends to suicide. Um, I'm not a researcher, but I think if there was one thing that I want professionals to take away from today, I think it's that we as young people are the experts of our own lived experience. And if you want to know how to best help us, you should let us lead the way. And this doesn't just mean co-design, but I think it means genuine lived experience leadership. Anyway, I'm just really excited to be here today and keen to chat further about how we can best be supported. Thanks. Such a crucial message. I'm also noticing in the chat, people are correctly pointing out that in Birmingham it's midnight. So thank you, Anna, for staying up late. Um, next is Antigone Davis. Hi, thank, thank you for um, having me. Um, I, I think you've already introduced, so I, I work at, at Facebook and I manage our safety teams and um, focus quite a bit on, on this particular issue and the work that we're doing uh, at Facebook um, in this area. I think if I were picking one thing that I would, would love to uh, hopefully be able to talk about, aside from complexity, because I want to give a big shout out for that, actually, um, is is to think about how we how we can build into um, people's experiences opportunities for them to take advantage of the kinds of things that can really build resilience, build well-being, um, and and make the kind of connections that that support both of those things as well. 
such an important point and so good to, you know, not all these discussions include people from the platforms themselves. So thank you so much, Antigone, for taking the time. It's so important. Um, and last but not least, uh, Professor Michiko Ueda. Great, thanks so much. Um, I do media and suicide as um, what I'm particularly interested in, probably something that I can into this panel is the different perspective of living in Asia and then big thing as well in Japan as well. There was one horrible incident which I can probably talk about later on that involves social media. And then we everybody talk Everybody tries to ban everything on social media. Do not talk about suicide. Do not post. I'm not sure that's the right approach, and that's something that I want to listen to that. Another thing that I'm interested in these days is using the machine learning or AI to detect suicide. That you know how to suicide or people are, and to inter, you know, proactively intervene in the message, and so that they can need to get some assistance and something that we can and. Um, Really interested in what Facebook is doing, and uh, but what Facebook is doing is also interesting. Thank. Fantastic. Amazing. And, um, go ahead. Go ahead, Joe. I was just going to turn it over to you. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much, everybody. So as I said, we've got so much wisdom on the screen with us today, which is great. And I, I love already that what we're talking about is the nuance and complexity because that's what I want us to kind of delve into a little bit here today, if possible. Because I think we, you know, we came at this when we began the chat safe work, we came at this from the perspective that, you know, the real narrative that was going on at the time was that, that social media was a really harmful platform or series of platforms, I guess, for young people to be talking about suicide. And we were really trying to discourage young people from having conversations about suicide or self-harm on, on social media platforms. <clears throat> excuse me and really what we were hearing from the young people that we work with is actually social media provides a really important forum or, or um, environment to have some of these conversations and so we didn't want to shut the conversations down but we wanted to try and find safe ways to help them have them but I think one of the challenges is what's helpful for some might be unhelpful or even harmful for others and it's a real struggle <clears throat> excuse me to get that to get that balance right. So I'm keen for us to kind of delve into some of the nuance and delve into some of the, the unknowns, I suppose, as we, as we have our conversation today. So I was going to, um, I guess, take the chair's privilege of giving a bit of a whistle-stop overview of ChatSafe and the background to it and how we got to where we are now. myself and Lou have chatted a bit about the, the work that we've been doing but just really as a bit of a short overview we know that tragically suicide rates in young people are increasing in many parts of the world and certainly that is the case here in Australia and there's been a lot of effort um, made um, or put into a lot of investment put into youth suicide prevention but really what we're still seeing are rates going up and so we've been, again, talking with young people, which is, you know, what we do at Origin and sort of saying, well, what do young people think some of the solutions might be? And what we were hearing from them is they were really telling us that the online environment needed to be a setting where we were focusing a bit more of our energy and efforts on understanding the ways that young people use social media to talk about this content 
and really looking at the ways we might be able to minimize the harms, but also maximize the good, I guess. So as you can see, I'm not quite sure how big the slides are on people's screens, but really we, we started all of this with um, <clears throat> some background work where we did some systematic reviewing and we did some survey work. And we really took some time to try and understand the different ways that young people use social media to talk about suicide. What they were telling us was they used it to perhaps share their own experiences when they were feeling in crisis or in distress and they wanted to reach out, seek help, share their feelings. They used it to support their friends. Um, they might stumble across content that other people had posted that suggested they were vulnerable or at risk and, and they wanted to help but didn't necessarily know how to or feel equipped to help. And they often used it to grieve for people who had died by suicide, whether that was a friend um, or a public figure or, or celebrity. So there were these different ways that young people were using social media to have these types of conversation. And there were lots of young people were telling us that there were lots of benefits to that. So they were sort of saying, you know, they like the 24 hour nature of social media platforms. They find it very accessible. They find it very non-stigmatizing and, and those sorts of things. It's an environment that young people are much more comfortable in than necessarily people of, of my generation might be. It's a kind of a natural extension to that. They're on an offline world, they're very merged. And I'm sure Em will, will talk to us about this as the, as the morning goes on. But of course, there are some downsides. And they're the sort of downsides that we worry about, which are things like the potential to cause distress or the potential for contagion or copycat type behavior. So we really wanted to find ways that we could help young people and support them to have these challenging conversations on social media, but minimize some of those harms. So that all led us to develop the ChatSafe guidelines. And what you can see from the next slide is that, you know, these were the world's first guidelines on um, how to help young people communicate safely about suicide on social media platforms. We developed them using a Delphi expert consensus methodology. So that meant we, um, we had some panels of experts. So there were some suicide prevention professionals and young people. So young people were involved in this project from the very, very beginning. Um, and we did a series of consensus activities that led us to the development of the guidelines. So we, I won't go too much into the details, it's all kind of published, but we ended up sort of developing these guidelines that were really structured around the different ways that young people had told us they use social media for this purpose. So I don't, yeah, they're perfect. Um, so the sections on how to talk online safely about suicide, sections on how to share your own thoughts, feelings and experiences, sections on how to respond to others who might be suicidal, and sections on how to talk about somebody who's died by suicide. And we've also then developed a whole suite of additional resources. So the guidelines themselves were really targeting young people, but we were really also very mindful that there's lots of adults in young people's lives who also want to support those young people. So families, carers, educators, and community members. So we've developed a whole suite of additional resources to accompany, accompany the guidelines. And they're all kind of freely available on the Origin website. We all found them <clears throat> terribly innovative. We were terribly excited about the guideline, guidelines and terribly proud of them. But essentially, they are just another set of guidelines. They are just a kind of big, long PDF, 32-page, I think, Lou, <laughs> PDF document on the Origin website, possibly not as user-friendly as they, as they could be. Um, 
So what we did, actually, if you don't mind going back up, Emily, to the previous slide, perfect. So this slide gives you an idea of what we then did to the guidelines. So we worked with young people um, across, across the whole country, across Australia, to bring the guidelines to life through a national social media campaign that we pushed out proactively through a whole suite of social media platforms. And Facebook, it's important to give them a bit of a shout out here because you guys were, Antigone, you guys were important partners in this project from the, from the very beginning for us. So they helped us kind of host some of our co-design workshops, which young people loved. They all loved coming to the Facebook headquarters. In fact, so did we, if the truth be told, we all got a big kick out of it. Um, and we and we developed a whole suite in partnership with young people, developed a whole suite of social media content that we then pushed out through a whole range of different social media channels. And the guidelines sit, as I said, on the Origin website, but they also sit on the Facebook and Instagram safety centre. So they've been able to kind of reach lots more young people than they might have been able to reach otherwise. <clears throat> we have done some evaluation and this is what you'll see on the next slide. Um, where we've done some studies testing the kind of the reach and the impact of the guidelines. So again, what you can see here is we've been able to reach lots and lots of young people um, through um, in terms of the guidelines, but also through the social media campaign. And we've done a series of kind of small studies, I suppose. Well, I say small studies, they weren't that small and they certainly didn't feel small at the time. Um, but we refer to them as pilot studies, I think, because they were simple pre post test studies. Um, but what we were able to demonstrate was that the guidelines or access to the chat safe content appeared to improve young people's willingness and, and capacity or perceived capacity to communicate safely online about suicide, but also to help their friends and respond both on and offline, actually, to suicide related content that their friends might have been expressing or posting. So I guess that told us that that the chat safe guidelines and intervention, first of all, was safe as an intervention or as an initiative. We didn't have any adverse events throughout any of the studies that we did. And we also, it appeared to have some positive impacts. But it was still a series of guidelines. And so although it was still very much took a harm minimization approach, and we were still really learning from, I guess, what was working offline, i.e. media guidelines, and applying those to the online environment. Possibly what was slightly different about it was that we were pushing those guidelines and that content out very proactively through social media campaigns. We're now using the content to respond in real time when a suicide does occur in, in certain jurisdictions across Australia and New Zealand. So if a, a young person does take their own life, ChatSafe gets notified um, by the Department of Health or PHNs and we push out specific content to the, to the adults in that community and also to the young people in that community to try and help that come um, to, I suppose, try and facilitate supportive and safe communication about the death online. But I guess, as Lou was sort of saying, what we're interested in now is kind of what next. We're about to kind of create ChatSafe 2.0. We're about to update all the guidelines. Um, and so we're kind of keen to think, well, how might we extend the ChatSafe work? What new knowledge and evidence is there about? How do we start to capture some of the new things that we're seeing online? And we'll talk a bit later, I think, about things like live stream events and those sorts of things. How do we manage those? What might um, guidance around those look like and include? And how might we kind of 
turn what we've done so far into a very proactive approach where we really start to harness some of the capability. And Michiko, you spoke about AI capabilities and those sorts of things. How might we harness some of the some of those capabilities to work a bit more proactively with the in partnership with the platforms um, to, to kind of advance this work? So I think that's where I'll kind of stop babbling on about chat say from how we've got to where we are today we are going to invite you to participate as much as possible so i'm going to ask you um and you can see on the next slide there's a bit of a question to our audience in terms of what do you think some of the key benefits and key risks are that are associated with social media platforms when it comes to communicating about or preventing suicide so we are inviting you to participate in the discussion so any thoughts you might have, put them into the discussion forum and put them into the Q&A and we'll do our best to tackle them, but also harvest some of those comments at the end of the discussion so that we can take them forward into the, into the next stages of our work. So with all that in mind, I think we might start to open up the conversation a little bit. Um, and if Emily, you don't mind taking us to our next slide, I'm going to sort of open this discussion up with some questions. So as I said, even though ChatSafe feels terribly innovative to us, it's still a harm minimization approach. It's still really mimicking what we've seen work offline, as I say, in terms of guidelines and apply them online. So I guess my questions, my first questions to, to my panel, <laughs> to my friends on the panel, are, are there other lessons in suicide prevention that we've learned offline that we could apply to the online environment that we're not doing? Or maybe is the better question, what do we know about young people and how they use the online environment that we could be applying in suicide prevention? So I'm kind of in some ways flipping the question a bit. And I'm going to throw the question first to Louise and then possibly to Emily because I think what they're going to do is challenge us a little bit to start to think differently. And Mark, I suspect we might come away, Mark, Michiko and I, we might come away being challenged today to start to think about all of this a bit differently. So, Lou, I know you, you've thought a bit about this in the early ChatSafe work and you've thought a bit about this through your PhD. So do you want to get us going? And you're muted. <laughs> I think someone's done it for me in the background. There we go. Thank you. Um, yeah, look, I think in preparing for this panel and in having conversations this week, I think you kind of already touched on the fact that this is a very complex, very nuanced issue. And I think, you know, that is probably the key thing for us to drive this conversation. When, when we think of young people and social media, so in part of my PhD was looking at the way young people use social media um, to... Uh, for their identity development, for their emotion regulation and to, and to develop those skills. And I think what we're seeing in the social media literature much more broadly, but also probably now in, in the work that we're doing, is that up until this point, we have grouped all young people as one homogenous group when it comes to us exploring what they're doing online and trying to investigate those behaviours. And I think we we had to do that groundwork we did have to do that first to kind of show that what we were doing is safe or that the questions that we were asking were relevant but i think now 
we've done that groundwork and we can take it to another level. We can, we kind of now know what we don't know. And I think a way forward for us um, in that space is to start looking at different groups of young people and what impact our work and other suicide prevention initiatives are having um, on them in the online space. I think without taking into consideration this more individualistic approach or without looking at, you know, different groups of young people, we will also fall trap, I suppose, into, um, I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is we, the masses, like, you know, what we've done at ChatSafe is very much a universal approach. We've very much looked at young people as across the board. And we found that, you know, for most young people, they did say it was acceptable. They did say it was safe. They did say that they found it helpful. But we do know that some young people didn't like some of the content. Some young people preferred different types of content. And I think that's kind of where I hope we go to next to try and understand that complexity and those individual factors that make someone um, like content or not like content, find content helpful or not find content helpful. Um, but yeah, I don't know if Em wants to kind of chime in here and and um, give us a her perspective. Sure. Thanks so much, Lou. Um, honestly, I, I do want to disclaim that like I am far from the elected representative for all young people lived experience of suicide. Um, I can only speak from my own lived experience and that of my peers. Uh, so I do encourage you to have conversations outside of this and don't take my word as gospel. Um, I think that there's definitely, I like Joe's second question of taking learnings from our experiences and how we use online platforms and using that in suicide prevention. Um, because I feel like um, for context, I've been in therapy for over 10 years and there are very traditional models to recovery. And I feel like a lot of suicide prevention initiatives expect young people to sort of fit into one model of care. Um, and in online spaces and development of technology, I feel like it's really given the reins over to us and helped us shape healing spaces for ourselves. Um, for me personally, healing looks different for everyone, but for me, it was finding out that I wasn't on alone and online communities really helped me in a time where, you know, I wasn't able to leave my room physically or emotionally. And it was the first place that I found people with diverse struggles and identities. And it also gave me non-traditional ways of communicating about my experiences. So weirdly enough, like it was a place of peer support. Um, but also I found like things like memes and like stuff like that, like incredibly helpful and good for things like alexithymia when I don't have words to describe what I'm feeling. Um, it really normalized a lot of my feelings and I feel like, yeah, there's there's a lot of learnings that can be done from what how we've actually shaped our own spaces. Um, so yeah, when I feel like, especially anonymous environments online, like it's a space where young people can choose to be unapologetically ourselves. And I think instead of, I, th I think our systems are so like harm and risk averse. Um, and something that I'd really like to focus on is about giving us dignity of risk, allowing us to shape our own spaces and sit with risk. Um, because if you sort of police one environment, um, you know, we'll just find another one. But yeah, thank you. I think that's so true. I think, you know, um, young people will always go out of their way to find spaces to hang out where adults are not, right? Um, and, you know, I did that when I was young and my daughter's done that and what have you. And now I think maybe the difference is that those spaces are online spaces rather than, you know, parks or bars or whatever in city centres, those spaces are just online. And maybe as adults, because we didn't grow up with those digital spaces available to us, we're a bit nervous about them. 
But you're right. I think young people are very good at curating their own digital experience and their own environment. I'm wondering, Antigone, what what you see from the platform's perspective around the ways young people might use certainly Facebook or Instagram to to have these types of conversation. Well, thank you, Joe. I, I, it's interesting the, listening to to the the conversation the conversation here. I think what we do what we do find is that the, that there is there are some things that maybe have a, a feeling of similarity across a number of young people, but there is actually a lot of individuality and there's a lot of complexity to to the points to the points raised. So depending on, on how someone comes into a particular space and then also how they're using that space, it can have a positive um, impact. So for example, if they're if they're hearing stories or or engaging around journeys towards um, understanding or recovery or um, figuring out uh, particular systems that may be beneficial to them, that can be really helpful. Um, if, on the other hand, sometimes, for example, aggregated content of a certain kind can prove particularly challenging for somebody. And I think one of the things that's 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 sort of interesting from what I'm hearing is and a challenge for tech companies is we build at scale. So we tend to build solutions in, for, lar for that are supposed to work globally or in some way are supposed to work globally. And that's actually challenging when you have particular groups of people who may not may not fit that global fit. How do you how do you address that? Do we try to offer potentially, and what I'm hearing here is maybe we need to offer people an opportunity to personalize their experiences inside of our apps more, to have more controls about um, in terms of what they're seeing or how they're engaging or, or even how long or how short they are are, are online. Can we build in the, the the tools to personalize their experience? So right now we have tools at scale um, where if we see um, if someone is is um, sharing content um, that may indicate that they that they actually are looking or needing or seeking help, we can people may may reach out and we can actually um, essentially connect say a friend who's, who reaches out with resources to reach out to that friend, or we can actually send resources um, immediately to that individual if, that, if that's appropriate. And the people who review that content who are especially trained find that it's appropriate. But maybe there's more that we can be doing to really individualize those kind of supports over time. And then how do we do that in a way that's actually then turn it in the reverse and make it scalable in some fashion? I think so. I'm just wondering if anybody else wants to jump here. I think that idea of a personalized response is absolutely critical. And it's something in, you know, we've all spoken about quite a lot about what, you know, I think what we're hearing from people is they really want a personalized response. And, and what we hear is that, you know, from young people is that tech companies and platforms have got all this capability. You know, you almost know all sorts of things about us. So, you know, and I think people do want a personalized and compassionate response, but how do you build that at scale? And at what point does it start to feel a bit creepy? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what others think. I'll jump in for one second in response before others jump in. We we do work with um, about a hundred partners around the world to ensure that at, at at you know at the at sort of the, the tip of the sphere of personalization that people are actually getting resources that are that are um, in the language that 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 they use um, in the region where where they are. But that feels like to me the the, the tip of the the tip of the sphere. And is there more that we can then that we can then do and uh, to your point about creepy, 
um, we, there are real privacy considerations in thinking this through. And maybe one of the ways to get at some of that is um, allow the individual to actually tell, tell us what they're looking for. So in other words, instead of us trying to read it through AI or other, other machine learning, allow them to signal and, 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 uh, and control that. Thanks, Antigone. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts on that. Michiko, do you or Anna have any thoughts on any of that? Or Emily? I can just keep talking forever if you let me, um, which do. I think is a bad idea. <laughs> um, honestly, Antigone, um, I really like your point of personalizing the space and making sure that resources are personalized as well. Um, I think one of the best things for me that I found is particularly a lot of Facebook groups that have their own rules um, and have their own moderation. Um, and for context, I used to work um, in technology and I'm a huge fan of ethical AI, but I think like stuff like AI and machine learning and algorithms need to be definitely co-designed with lived experience people in mind because it can't just be like picking up certain trigger words or learning off an algorithm that isn't a human um, because suicide and self-harm is incredibly complex and we all have different ways of expressing ourselves and ways that we experience it so we cannot just like distill it down to certain yeah basic normal ways of working out algorithms um, so I think one of the best things for me is um, places like Discord or specific Facebook groups that have like set rules um, and people can join those spaces and be aware of all the transparency of those rules and what they can and cannot share and what isn't isn't recorded in terms of their own personal data. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's just critical, isn't it? I think that young people tell us all the time that they want to be able to just take control. One thing actually that's just sort of interesting, an interesting idea that's coming into my mind, why I love doing these, because actually from all the experts, I walk out and oh, I want to go back to work and say, oh, here's what we can do, here's what we can do. But we actually have at Facebook a comment filter, which allows people to, to have some control over the comments underneath underneath their posts. And it's it was it's actually fundamentally designed to deal with issues of bullying and harassment. So there's a there's a part of the filter where you can just sort of turn it on and off. And based on AI, it'll take things that typically get reported to us as potentially bullying and we'll and can filter those out. But but we actually allow you to put words in your own words in that you may want to filter out or comments with those words because oftentimes bullying has a very specific and unique um, unique context to it. I've never thought about it until we're sitting here today, but I wonder if there might be something interesting in, in this particular area and in this particular space where you could give somebody the ability to control those kind of comments or things that may be actually triggering for one individual, but helpful for another individual. It's just, it's just, so thank you is basically what I'm saying. You've percolated ideas. And you've almost jumped us ahead a little bit because we, I think we, had a couple of things that we were keen to talk about, which is how Facebook does respond a little bit when there are expressions of risk and things like that on the platform. But there's also that idea about what is helpful for some people and might be unhelpful at the same time for others. Um, yeah, so we've kind of almost jumped ourselves ahead a little bit, I think. So yeah, Mark, I might, yeah, well, no, it's good, it, it's good. Um, so, Mark, I might hand over to you. 
Sure, sure. And, and just to mention, you know, there have been a couple of really interesting comments in the in the chat. Um, Elliot Taylor was talking about the idea of actual professionals intervening online. And hang on, because we have some questions about that coming up later. Uh, Laura Hemming um, was was noting an important point about the the potential benefits of the people giving help or two people who are giving help online that it may help with their agency and self-efficacy. And there was one question which maybe we could um, just quickly put to the group. Uh, Lorna Hirsch was asking about commenting on the concept of copycat behavior, that the term, I guess, feels dismissive of the impact of modeled behavior on someone who identifies with pain, of someone who ends their life. The impact of this modeled behavior of ending pain is impactful on social media as the community reaches so huge. So I guess here lies the space to talk, to share, and to offer support. I don't know if anyone wants to pick up on that question, but I suppose we know that um, certainly you can see social learning of suicidal behavior, but does anyone want to say something about the idea of copycat behavior? I mean, I think I might say that I, it's not a term that I particularly like, I have to say, and I do think it's a term that is quite patronizing and dismissive of what is probably a complex problem, I think. Um, and I, I think the, the couple of things that we really worry about when it comes to talking about suicide and self-harm, and I think Anna might talk to us a little bit about self, her work in self-harm, um, is you know we do worry about the potential for distress and we worry about that potential for you know what people might describe as copycat type behavior. But as I say, I, it's not a term that I particularly like, but where that idea that they've um, exposure to a particular type of behavior then in, might lead somebody else or increase the likelihood that somebody else will engage in that type of behavior themselves. Um, for me, and, and I guess, and Antigone, you might have some views around this, but I guess that's something that, that we do see sometimes and it can occur, particularly in some of those group scenarios, you know, closed groups and what have you, where a type of behavior, you know, might escalate in a particular group. I, mean, I wonder a little bit if the, if really the biggest risk is distress that, you know, that exposure to suicide related content and self-harming related content, the biggest risk is about distress and, and potentially traumatizing others. I don't know. Um, Anna, I don't know if you want to kind of jump in here and, and talk a little bit about your work actually. Yeah, sure. So yeah, you're right, Joe. I completely agree. Copycat um, is not a word that I would use either. But one of the things we've tried to look at, particularly in relation to self-harm content, is that notion of triggering and what it means. Because we use the word a lot. Um, you know, this is triggering. But what do we mean when we're saying that? And often it is a kind of this is triggering copycat behaviour. They come kind of as a pairing often. And we try to pass that apart and think about what is it that's going on there. So we looked at kind of graphic imagery. And this is our older work from 2018. But we've also done it more recently in, in relation to really what would be thought of as the most graphic kind of self-harm imagery and thinking, OK, so this is the bit that, for example, like Matt Hancock, our health minister at the time in 2019, called unacceptable but let's really think about this in context. Um, and we found that there are two things. I mean, there's that inevitable tension that I kind of alluded to at the beginning between the viewer, thinking about the welfare of the viewer and thinking about the welfare of the poster. And I think that we always hold those in a kind of tense analytical space in these discussions. But so we, in terms of the, the viewer, we found some quite interesting things around triggering in terms of that it was very much, as you said, Joe, the distress. So people were saying, even when I'm, triggered by looking at someone else's self-harm imagery so it literally makes me go away and self-harm 
a kind of linear copycat mechanism. It was much more around, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that person's in pain. And that's making me kind of take on and re-experience that. And then re-feeling almost, it's very much an empathy kind of mechanism, re-feeling that distress. Uh, I then cope with that by self-harming. So there was nothing linear kind of going on there that would be encapsulated by the notion of copycat. Um, and then we also, just as slight aside, but we, we looked at why the um, why people were posting that kind of imagery, therefore. Um, and because, again, it's been talked about in a copycat way as a sort of competition. Uh, they, they, they also come together in that same kind of sentence of competition, contagion, copycat. And... Um, we very much found that people weren't kind of posting. I mean, there are pockets of the internet where there is certain, I'm not going to completely deny there is some competition. But again, even that was around kind of group belonging and, and um, seeking help and wanting to stay as part of a group that's giving you help. So again, you can't dismiss it. Um, but what we found is that people are posting images and it's not even necessarily an image of their own self-harm wounds. It may be a found photo because it's a signifier and it simply says, look, I'm in pain, will somebody reach out to me, please? Um, so even with the stuff that has been, well, banned on some platforms and very much in policy discussions, just, you know, it's dismissed as kind of unacceptable. There's much more going on there that we really need to think about the people, essentially, on each side. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's really struck me when I've sat on those advisory groups for for Facebook and, and you know, we're given a you know, series of images and said, should, are these images we should allow on the platform or we should remove from the platform? And it's so hard to answer that those questions. And for me, I always yeah. sort of say, well, we need to ask young people, the, the people that we're trying to kind of protect here. Um, but it is really difficult, isn't it? Because what, yeah. Um, and, you know, as you found in your work, Anna, you know, a lot of the the purpose of posting is to seek help. And yeah. it might lead, you know, it can be for some anyway, and it can can lead those people to get help. And as kind of Laura's picked up a little bit in the discussion, it can also allow people to help others. And we've definitely found that people have reported finding that therapeutic in and of itself. And we've done some separate work, and I don't want to derail us too much here, but we have done some separate work starting to look at that role of burdensomeness and some of Thomas Joyner's theories and how they apply to the online space. But Lou, I'm just wondering if you want to jump in and talk a little bit about the findings from our, and I have completely, we've completely derailed ourselves already, um, <laughs> but from our self-harm study. Yeah, de definitely. And there are two things I want to pick up from what Anna was saying. The first thing, I think it's really interesting, this notion of social belonging in online communities and having to fit in. And I think particularly when you think about the younger cohort, sorry, my neighbour has decided that this is a great time to mow the lawn. So I'm very sorry if there's some background noise. Um, but I, yeah, sorry, I think this notion of um, having to fit in with your social group and, and a, something I'm thinking of here is, you know, we're often called upon by the youngest, like primary school age, you know, 10, 11 year olds, um, their educators or their parents saying that they're seeing this a lot um, in that age group around, you know, sharing images of self-harm. And I think, you know, and they're doing it in private spaces. So maybe, you know, Snapchat where things disappear, WhatsApp, where it's just a contained group of young people. And I think what that makes me question is then how do we identify the young people that need what types of support? Because there are going to be some young people who are trying to fit in. There are going to be some young people in that group who really are distressed and, and potentially at risk. And then it's like, how do you, within a social group, 
or within a social private space navigate those supports and what interventions each child needs. So I think that's a really interesting point for us to think about further. Um, I'd also touch on, you know, what we were saying around images being distressing. And I thought something in the, in the study that we've just recently completed that was really interesting was that young people told us that when they came across an image of self-harm online, it could be quite distressing and it could be quite upsetting. But when that image was accompanied by text and when that image was accompanied by a context of what that person was going through or experiencing or feeling, it immediately scaffolded that, that situation and made it safer. And so, you know, I know we say don't do, like we probably want to say don't post these images or don't turn to the internet to, to share your story in some respects, but in others, I think, you know, we know that people are going to do that. So maybe we need to start equipping people with the tools to keep themselves, but also those who come across that information safe. So if you are going to share an image, it helps others if they know why that image is there, how that image has come about. Um, and not just an image on its own, which can have a bit more of a shock factor and less scaffolding. Um, and I think that's a really interesting finding because, you know, we don't, yeah, I, I think what that means for the advice that you would pro provide onwards has some implications. So, so this may be a good segue into the next set of questions. I mean, one of the things that I'm taking away from the discussion is we need more complexity and more nuance and uh, more humanity and compassion. And uh, that's, for example, I think two reasons why the copycat uh, term is, is not a good one. You'll see on your uh, screen on the slide um, a Twitter poll where we asked, um, you know, or noted that sometimes people express suicide risk on social media. And if this happens, is it helpful or acceptable for the platforms to provide suicide prevention tools, info or resources? And you can see that um, three quarters almost of people thought that that was a good thing to do. And, and in fact, most of the rest thought that it depended, but that some of the time probably it is a good thing to do. Um, so keeping that in mind, I'd like to ask the group if there's an opportunity for us to really capitalize more on, on the attributes of social media that, you know, how, it, how it's organized and, and some of the unique aspects of it to find a way to respond in a more personalized and maybe compassionate manner, and also more preventatively and proactively. Um, at the moment, we should acknowledge that platforms do uh, reach out if people express suicide risk, and people do have a range of views on this. And do we think that the platforms do enough? And what would a, a quote unquote perfect response if such a thing exists, what would that look like? Um, maybe, maybe I can throw it again to M because I think you had some thoughts about this. Sure. Um, yeah, I like the quote-unquote uh, because I think the idea of a perfect response um, is not really idealistic. Um, I mean, is idealistic. I think it implies that it's sort of static. Um, and the thing is, is that as young people, we're constantly changing the ways that we interact with things and technology is also constantly progressing. So I think it's about continuous improvement and there's not really a point where everything is perfect. Um, also, I do want to reiterate that everyone's experiences are very different. And so I don't think, I think a perfect response also implies that it's sort of like a one size fits all. Um, and I think current mental health systems do that enough. So I'd appreciate if we do develop something new, it would be personalized as well. Um, I think something that would help me specifically, um, I guess a personalized response would be something that would be direct and private. Um, it would potentially be from someone that would be like a singular point of contact as opposed to like different people a lot because we do hear that a lot from like different helplines um, and it's hard to engage with someone that you don't know. So allowing me my dignity of risk um, approach me without judgment, basically a 
peer support worker would be ideal for me. Um, someone that's able to like come to my level and approach me without thinking that, um, I don't know, policing my content or being extremely worried or risk averse of anything like that. Um, I think it's really important to not censor us in any way um, and just following up with genuine support, like approaching us with curiosity and compassion is the best thing that I think. Um, yeah. We did, we did also ask, because I'm very mindful that M is one representative of a young person, but we did ask some other young people what they thought of, um, you know, of, of Facebook or Instagram responding when people expressed risk. And as you can see, young people were actually much more unanimous in thinking they did want resources or they did want a response, unlike adult adults that had slightly different views. Um, and if the other Emily doesn't mind taking us to the next slide, please, you can see just some of the comments actually that some of the other young people made in terms of what a good response might look like. And we'll, we'll give Antigone the right to reply in a second from a, from a platform perspective and kind of look and talk us through what she does, but I'll, I'll shut up for a second and let Mark carry on. <laughs> Sorry, I was on mute. No, you were doing such a good job. Um, I, actually, I was just gonna ask Antigone, do you wanna share with us, um, you know, uh, I, I suppose what Facebook is doing and what your sense is about how to address this challenge? And we've got some yes. slides on this as well, Emily, if you don't mind, thanks. Absolutely. Before we jump to jump to our slides, let me just I do want to give a, a shout out to you, Joe, and to to all all the folks who work work with you. Um, I do think speaking to the scaffolding piece and and chat and how to chat safely. I mean, I think this is exactly some of the chat safe work that's been done is sort of providing those guidelines and how you can share those things in a way that is important and safe for you, but also important and safe for the person who who's viewing. And so, you know, I do want to give you guys a shout out for really doing that work and for um, partnering with us and helping us to do that. And I have a thought on it that that I'll follow up in a minute, but. Uh, to share a little bit about what we what we do do on Facebook, so we um, if someone has posted content that may indicate that they are in distress or that they are having su suicidal ideation and and um, are indicate that to the person who may be family or friends with them that they may need or be seeking help, um, the person who sees this can actually report it report it to us. And if someone does report that content to us, we do a few things. One, for the person who's reported it, we will actually give them an opportunity to reach out directly to that person. And um, and when they do that, to actually be able to get guidance from experts. So there's some guidance in our in our app that provide that's provided that's been built by experts, but they can actually also speak directly with someone who's an expert before before reaching out to that individual if they're not sure what to say or what to do. Or how to approach the person. In addition, that content is, comes to us and comes to some specially trained uh, reviewers that we have. If they look at that content and feel that, yes, this is content that where someone might actually want some resources, we will send those resources to the individual. We'll let them know someone shared this with, this with us. Here are resources that are available. And the person can interact with those resources, there are tips. There's also they can also reach out to an expert. They also cannot interact if that's if that you know I don't actually need that. And you've got you know I have my own places for getting support. That's also fine. Also fine. They're able to do that. Um, if we find uh, that that it looks like there may be an imminent situation, we will reach out to first first responders to to get help. And that um, it, that's always a. It, uh, 
a matter we want to do that quickly and with speed and get and get to the get to the person quickly um, but but we should talk a little bit about that because there are challenges that we face we faced face in, in, in doing in doing that um, the other thing is that we do use some um, machine learning to try to identify identify content like this and it's interesting and I think the group will find it interesting that a lot of the the signals that are important to us are actually how people respond to the content um, as opposed to necessarily the content and this may go to the fact that how someone is posting may be quite individualized but the people who who know that person or see that are, are connected to that person may be actually in a very good position to know whether there's there's something that, that needs um, needs someone to respond to. And so it's actually some of the comments underneath a particular post that can be far more helpful for us in determining whether it would be a good idea to send resources or, or um, and how to respond. So I, I wonder if we could just pick up on something that, that you mentioned a second ago, Antigone, about uh, sending first responders. Um, you know, full disclosure, I was in a session yesterday where I think someone said that should never be done. So I think we have a range of views about this, uh, this idea. And, and there are a host of different issues, right? I mean, if you're going to do that, there are issues about what we call sensitivity and specificity, or if you do it all the time, then you're going to have all sorts of, you know, police descending on people's, uh, you know, places for, for no reason, uh, or at least not, not the, maybe a useful reason. And then if you don't do it very much, it may be that you're missing out on situations where you might be able to actually help. Uh, there are issues about privacy, there are issues about culture and legal aspects, places where, you know, in the world where maybe the, the law enforcement, and really it should, probably shouldn't be law enforcement, right, it should probably really be, um, you know, emergency medical services or some equivalent, although I know that doesn't often, often happen. Um, so maybe I'll just put this out to the group. I mean, how do we sort out that issue and, and what could be done better? I can share some things that people have said to us that we've that have been challenges and things that things for us to think about and try to figure out. Um, and I think you, you've hit touched on them a little bit. So let's just take first responders. First responders um, vary in kind and and type um, at all over the world and in training all over the world and. Um, and and actually in whether they're welcome in a community or not and whether they're actually perceived as safe in a community. And so this that can be can be challenging challenging for us. And we've talked about, um, is it maybe you have, you know, can people appoint, appoint someone inside of Facebook that you actually let that person know as opposed to uh, a first responder? And, and could you do that at scale? And, and it's, it's a, it is, it is a challenging and, and complicated, but certainly I think the kind of next steps or frontiers that you can see coming, um, you know, as, as this work, as this work progresses. I think it definitely presents a challenge, doesn't it? In terms of, you know, are you sending the right response to the right people at the right time? What about, um, you know, I've, we've got colleagues, when we were doing the globalization of the chat safe guidelines, I remember talking to colleagues in other countries um, who were sort of saying that actually, you know, well, good luck calling first responders because they'll never come out for something like this. Or what about in um, countries where suicide's not legal? What are the implications there? So it's a real challenge. and. You know, all the extensive research I've been doing in my Twitter polling over the last couple of weeks, you know, what people are crying out for is a human response and a compassionate response. Um, but what, how do, it's so tricky, isn't it, to get that balance right? I'm just wondering, Michiko, if you wanted to jump in here at all. Sorry. 
Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Is it working now? Yeah. Yes, thanks so much. Um, I think it has been all fascinating. I was listening to this. And I, I don't think, uh, first of all, in Japan, I don't think that the police or anybody, we are not doing this. The privacy concern is too much here, and nobody wants to do this here, at least as far as I know. Um, but the, I think one thing that I was thinking conversation is what they really, the young individuals who are posting suicide content online, want do they want help or they just want to connect with others who have had experiences and i'm not sure so so I, i'm also trying to send them you know the, the information about helplines and others but i'm not sure whether that's what they will, will want something that i was thinking about the reason i'm saying this is that as i said you know there was a one horrible incident in japan several years ago that was in on twitter there was one guy who tried to be pretended that he was suicidal and he pretended he was looking for somebody to die together. And he connected on Twitter with a bunch of young guys and they got together. And then eventually I killed all of them, nine of them. And it turned, and that's one thing that was really striking about this incident was he said, again, nobody and any of the nine guys who were killed wanted to die at all, although they say they really want to die on Twitter and they were connected. But nobody really wanted to die. They just wanted somebody to hang out with and just commiserate on experiences. And that makes well, maybe they're looking for help, but they were just looking for somebody who were just going you know, to try to share experiences. Sending resources just help you know, the information about helplines and stuff. I'm not sure how much they're using and if if this has data on how much is it actually used or any information about this that would be useful in terms of you know we, we place on Twitter as well we place the number and the chat line thing. I'm not sure they don't disclose how many of them actually on these um, information. Does Facebook have any information about that kind of these resources that useful or used by them? So there, as you as you might imagine, there are a lot of, of privacy concerns around tracking those those kinds of those kinds of things. I do think, though, I, I'll talk to you about the experience of one of our one of um, our partners, um, helplines, and then I'll also sort of throw out an, a, a concept. Hearing what everybody's saying, that strikes me as potentially an interesting, interesting um, concept. So, in terms of in terms of I, understanding how our systems work, we do have one particular partner that that um, we engage with a bit crisis text line around the world. Now they use volunteer crisis support, and, um, but but they do find that people um, people do come from from our reporting flows or also from their page where we've actually embedded in a tool called Crisis Service Over Messenger where someone can go directly to their page, click on that tool and be and, and be linked to to someone for, for support. So there you know in that case that someone's actually actively seeking support. But even in, in both cases, both from their page and from people, um, from our reporting tools, um, they do get a significant amount of engagement and and people people wanting to get support and, and reach out. And they, ha they have some um, numbers that, that they track and they're really in the best 
best position to do that because they are actually the crisis service provider and, and have all kinds of privacy safeguards in place to do that. Um, one of the things that sort of strikes me as interesting in hearing what everybody is, is saying is that to the extent that people come, I think someone mentioned that people come into smaller groups to actually just connect with other people who, who are having similar experiences. You know, and this makes me think then of the chat safe stuff. And you know, we have admins of our group. So when someone sets up a group, they are sort of the admin of the, they set the rules as, as someone was mentioning. We've done some trainings with group admins where they are given some tools and, and um, resources from experts in, in dealing and managing their group and making sure to connect people. I think there's probably more that could be done. These groups are, are quite powerful. They're quite, um, people find them quite useful and helpful um, in their, in, in their experiences. And it might be that we could really um, uh, support our group our group admins in ways and, and actually help them to identify if somebody is posting because they just want to have a, a conversation and they're trying to make a human connection. If someone is posting because they actually are looking for like fundamental intervention or support, and there may be ways that we can actually equip them to, to, um, to identify those kinds of things and then connect people with what, what they're looking for. Yeah, I think it's super interesting, actually, because when I was doing my extensive and rigorous research on Twitter recently, you know, this is some of the comments that that I was seeing when, you know, when we were, I was asking the question, is it useful to receive these sorts of resources? A lot of the young people sort of say yes, but actually a lot of the adults were saying, no, I'm just here to vent. And I want, you know, for me, social, my social media environment is, a, you know, is my safe space, if you like. And if I want to just share my feelings, that's what I'm here to do. And I'm not actually looking for intervention, but I'm, you know, very happy to think together a little bit about how we could adapt ChatSafe or move ChatSafe on to kind of fulfill a bit of a role there. Or I think I'm going to do two things. I think Anna wants to jump in. I'm going to pose a question for our audience while we're carrying on, and then Mark's going to move us on a bit. So the question for our audience, it's a little poll. Um, and I think our, our friend Emily in the background is going to launch the poll, which is we're talking here about using social media in a kind of a harm minimization way and Facebook or other platforms sending out resources when people do express risk on the platform. What do people think about the idea of using it more proactively and using social media to push out things like safety planning tools or other interventions like that? Um, into people's news feeds if they're seeing people post risk. So I think Emily's going to launch us a poll. I'm not quite sure what that looks like. And while she's doing that, I'm inviting you all to tell us what you think, because this is something we're grappling with at ChatSafe. And I'm going to let Anna jump in, and then I'm going to shut up and let Mark move us on. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Yeah, I was just thinking because what we've like so far in the conversation, like non-judgmental and safe and connection have come up across the conversation. It made me think that in terms of thinking about the quote unquote perfect response, whether that be at platform level or from other people or from organizations clinically, we've got quite a lot to learn from spaces that even from the outside might look incredibly harmful. So we've done a lot of work recently on, for example, pro-choice suicide forums. Um, and those, on the one hand, yes, I'm not denying potential harm, but people also say, you know, this has kept me alive for 10 years being here because it is all about this is a space to share. 
So I think rather than there's a tent because I think that risk averse thing again that we talked about earlier, there is a tendency to say, no, those kind of spaces, let's not engage. And I think we've got a kind of ethical responsibility to engage with what is already going on organically on social media um, in spaces that, you know, might be a bit scary as researchers, as you know, when when thinking about this topic. What is working for people within that space and how do we then replicate that in a way that is perhaps safer? And the flip side of that is, you know, our, our work, we've seen a lot of people also talking in those kind of spaces about how messages of hope, for example, aren't well received, that they find them upsetting, even distressing because, they, you know, to be told, oh, it'll get better. And somebody says, do you know what, it hasn't got better for 10 years because you know, this doesn't change, like my housing conditions, for example, I still, you know, what is going to change? Um, and on the one hand, that's heartbreaking to hear, but I think we also need to listen. It's very much, I think we need to listen to what's going on organically on social media. There's a lot to learn about what works and what doesn't work that people are already doing for each other, I think. I think that's absolutely true. And I, I wonder, there's that whole issue around kind of, you know how much we overmanage an environment and how you know risk averse we are and i know you know we're suicide prevention people so it's in our dna to kind of protect people but at the same time i'm thinking back to emily's point before as well which is kind of if we over over restrict an environment people will just go somewhere else um and what have you all right um i think we might move ourselves on a little bit i think we could clearly all talk about this all day <laughs> So we're going to move on to think about, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit um, already, I think, about that whole idea that what is harmful for some can be helpful for others and vice versa, and how you get that balance right of individual versus population-based approaches. What we're going to do now is just show actually a quick video of a piece of work that we did which was asking young people to share their own experiences of, of what we're talking about as hope and recovery. So one of the things that we've been talking about a lot in social media is, um, you know, the potential harms. And there's research to suggest that, that sharing certain types of content can potentially be harmful. That's what we've been talking about so far. But there's also evidence to suggest that sharing hopeful content or stories of recovery can be helpful and can have a preventative effect. And one of the things that we've been grappling with at ChatSafe is, well, what do stories of hope and recovery look and feel like for young people? And how do we capture those stories in a way that are true to the experience that the young person had? So don't gloss over the difficulties that they've experienced, but also convey hope at the other, at the other end. So we've done a piece of work. We work very closely with a group of young people who were generous enough to share their stories with us. And we then worked with some um, design students at RMIT University who brought those um, stories to life in a, um, in a new part of the ChatSafe website. So what I'm going to ask Emily to do now is, not you, Em, so don't panic, um, our other Emily, is to show us a video that shows a little bit of the safe space um, content and a little clip of us and some of the students talking about that content. And then we'll come back and have a bit of a chat about how we get that balance right, um, if that's okay. So Emily, I'll, I'll let you show the video if that's all right.
And we established ChatSafe a few years ago, really to help young people communicate safely about suicide on social media platforms. And we've recently extended that and we're really excited to be launching the safe space part of the ChatSafe program. Young people have shared their stories with us where they've had experiences with either their own suicidal thoughts or feelings, or perhaps where they've been bereaved by suicide. And what we've done is then turned them into this component, I guess, of the ChatSafe website that other young people can turn to if they, for example, want to share their own stories. They've got some lovely clear examples here of how other young people might have done that safely. Where people share stories of, of recovering from suicidal type experiences, that can have a positive effect on other young people. And I think actually the stories that we've done, that we've got, have really captured that. They've done a fantastic job of not glossing over some of the difficulties that young people had, whilst at the same time creating, um, creating stories of, of hope. We were really fortunate to work towards the later half of 2020 with a group of students from RMIT as part of their ethical design unit. Uh, and part of that unit saw them take a brief from the ChatSafe project. So we did pitch five different ideas. Uh, and this particular group chose the stories of hope and recovery uh, as the brief that they wanted to respond to. Uh, and that group listened to the stories that were shared to us by young people um, who had themselves experienced a suicidal crisis. Uh, and this group of students, which was Matilda, Lindsay and Joanne, took those stories um, and created this concept of safe space as a way to bring those stories to life. Those stories can sort of give the person a bit of an idea of what's up ahead. Um, you know, they're going through these dark times and it sets them up that, yes, recovery is a journey and um, it's not going to get better straight away, but look at all these people that are doing better and have had setbacks and have pushed through them and have found help um, and have found help that works. So, you know, if all these people can do that, then you can do that too. Like we would have an idea and I just love that moment of, you know, everyone's faces being really bright and being like really excited. Um, I like those moments because it reminds me of just how much it mattered to us. Um, it wasn't like it was a uni project, but it wasn't about a grade. Like I think we all kind of knew. So like we just kind of genuinely cared about this project on the same level. You know, this project is something I wish I had um, when I was going through my own struggles. Um, and so to think that this is now a thing and it could potentially help people, maybe even save a life. I think that that resonated with me. Um, it's a really, uh, I guess, impact. Um, and it, it sort of, um, I think, shifts us into uh, something that may be a little tougher conversation. I see that in the Q&A, Lai Fong Chang has asked about um, what about the live streaming of, of even more, uh, you know, for some people, certainly very distressing content, like the live streaming of an actual suicide attempt. Um, and of course, there's a different continuum that lies on a continuum. There are people who publish suicide notes and, um, and, and express suicidal intent without necessarily showing it. Uh, you'll see on your screen that um, 
we did we did a poll which suggested that about a third of, of people thought that actually um, such events, if it's actually a live stream suicide attempt, should be pulled down immediately. Um, and then maybe the theme of our discussion today that two thirds thought it depends very much on the situation, maybe allowing it to run for a bit, um, depending on on um, as you can see on the side there, um, some different considerations of things that could be helpful. Um, so I don't know if it would help. Maybe Antigone, do you do you want to weigh in on on what Facebook does in those circumstances and and what you think? Yeah. So I mean, this is actually um, was a, a a source of a lot of conversation and discussion at Facebook, and actually an area where we relied quite a bit on experts like Joe, and we have a whole group of experts in the area of of suicide and self harm who we we meet with regularly and to this day meet regularly and our and our policies are sort of constantly um, evolving and iterating as we learn more as we see people use our platform in different ways as we, we begin to understand more context and so we're, we're constantly building um in the context of 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 live we really had this place where we want to tell you if someone is is um, live broadcasting an opportunity for us to become aware or for someone to reach out so you can imagine if someone feels um, the need to to move to live and to and to share how they're feeling you know the, the thought of sort of immediately cutting them off because we think something might be about to happen it seems like um, I think someone spoke about being human it doesn't feel entirely like a human response it feels a bit inhumane and so finding that way to allow for human response for people to actually indicate um, uh, that they're there for this individual, et cetera, is important to us. But similar to issues of trying to address, like we know, for example, sometimes sharing method can be um, can be really problematic for others and unsafe for others. So this is a little bit that those kinds of lines that we're drawing and where we turn to our experts. experts. But the goal here is to um, open up an opportunity with our policies, open up an opportunity for getting someone the support or resources or, um, or connection that they may need with another human being um, at the same time without um, not putting someone else into an unsafe situation. One of the more challenging um, issues that we that we deal with. And it is super challenging, isn't it? So this is where I was doing, again, extensive Twitter research over this last week or so. And even people that kind of, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about suicide prevention struggled to think about what, a, again, what a perfect response would be because people recognised the opportunity it might present for intervention, but at the same time, the potential harm or distress and trauma potentially for somebody being exposed to, to a live stream suicide. I'm looking at our audience poll here and most people are saying, you don't let it run, take it down. So 60% are saying, don't let it run. I'm just wondering what others might think about this, if, if any of the rest of our panel have some views on this. Yeah, Emily, go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, again, if you give me any opportunity to talk, I'll take it. Um, yeah, uh, I, I do want to point out that, like, there are probably some young people in the chat, but I think it is up to us and it's up to the users to decide what we can and can't handle. Um, I think there are significantly, like, it's not just, I, I know Antigone pointed out that it's a bit, like, inhuman and unnatural to take down um, someone's live stream and cut off midstream but it's not just inhuman and unnatural it's like it's unsafe straight up um i think 
as young people and people with lived experience, if we want to express ourselves, we will find a place. And if it's taken down in one place, it could be incredibly harmful for everyone involved. It could be harmful for the viewers who don't know what to do afterwards. It could be harmful for the person who's trying to ask for help or express themselves. I think the best thing that can be done is to allow ourselves to express ourselves on this platform, but then also give not only the streamer, but the audience, the tools and proactive resources to actually know how to respond, know how to control our content. So that's using stuff like spoilers, supporting us in safe storytelling or how to reach out, or how to take care of ourselves if we've seen something. Um, I think it's upskilling us rather than censoring it. Um, I think it's, I don't know, I, I, I think from my experience with clinicians, there's a tendency and researchers, there's a tendency to sort of bubble wrap us, but that doesn't take away the risk. It's empowering us to learn how we can best support ourselves um, and how we can control our own experiences. So, so that's so major. important. Oh. Um, uh, I don't mean to speak in front of Joe, but um, Joe and I had talked about the fact that we're really going to run against time here, and we knew that it would probably you could spend days talking about this. So hopefully we can we can all convene again at some point. I just wanted to ask one question before we get some closing thoughts. Um, one of the things that's certainly a concern that I have, and I can tell you based on our research in Canada, I mean we're trying very hard to have people talk about um, stories of resilience and recovery, like the video that you've shown. But as recently as a few years ago, pretty much 100% of the content that was shared both in mainstream and social media here uh, was all stories of death and, and um, uh, you know, without really any emphasis on hope and recovery. And so it leads to a question that I have, and I think all of us grapple with about, um, you know, we all want people to be able to talk about suicide and we want to decrease the barriers and the stigma about doing so. And at the same time, there is a fine line about not inundating people with suicide content or normalizing uh, suicide as sort of a, a usual or, you know, heaven forbid, kind of helpful uh, strategy in, uh, of coping. And so um, I wonder what people's thoughts are about that line and whether we're, we're drawing it correctly and, and where to go from here. Is there such thing as too much content on social media about suicide? Are we are we at risk of normalizing? I don't know. Yep, M, go. <laughs> Sorry, um, I remember we were discussing this before today, um, and I still find the concept of too much content like, um, I don't know. I I, I think we need to think about who that statement is referring to because I don't think for young people it's necessarily too much content but I think it's too much content for people that are not us um like because our experiences are happening regardless of how often we post it online or not so I think if it's the case that researchers or platform leaders think that there's too much content it's not about changing our experiences but empowering us on how we can better seek help and how we can safely share that content A couple of, of I, I, this may just be more questions than 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 answers, but um, it definitely is more questions than answers. <laughs> I, one thing that's sort of interesting to me in thinking about the concept of of normalizing. So there's a bit like normalizing and destigmatizing are sort of interesting to me. So on the one hand, you may not want to normalize the choice um, to harm oneself um, because it is harmful. On the other hand, you, you do want to 
destigmatize the fact that someone is um, experiencing thinking these things. And also, the, it's a weird term to me, normalized, because you don't want, in a way, even the term feels like it could stigmatize. In other words, you don't want someone to necessarily, who's dealing with these issues, to necessarily feel like they're abnormal. Um, and so it, it's just, I, I just, it's a, it's a very, it's an interesting conversation. I don't have an answer. I'm literally posing it as a question. I think I feel that question quite deeply because these are the kinds of challenging issues for us uh, on our on platforms because people do talk about things like aggregated content and the impact of seeing content in an aggregated way versus seeing an individual piece of content. And so um, I, I, I don't know, this is a tough one. Um, I love anybody's guidance here. Sorry, Antigone, I just want to quickly say that like I really like how you're posing a lot of questions and not um, giving necessarily answers because I think it's important for us to actually ask those questions and then get together a group of lived experience experts to answer those. Um, and I've, I've seen from the you know the chat today that there are so many other questions as well. And I'd love for you know that expert panel that you spoke about who are professionals and leaders, but also include experts by experience and then ask those questions to those people. Follow up on that. Lou, were you going to jump in? And then I think Anna might jump in too. Yeah, and I'm so conscious of time. So I was going to be very quick. But I think also that speaks to us needing to understand more about the young people who are coming across the content. Like, depending on where they're at in their own mental health journey might mean that they resonate or are affected by content in a very different way. So again, I don't think we can just group all young people who see content as one. I think, you know, someone who's doing quite well it might just be water off a duck's back kind of thing. Whereas someone who might not be feeling so well, then we might have more of a problem. So I think we need to understand those in a little bit more detail, but let's go to Anna. I completely agree with that. It's about that intersection of content and context again, isn't it? But I think that word normalize is really interesting because I was working with the Young Persons Advisory Group in Birmingham this week. Um, one of the um, yeah, members was saying, it's great that social media normalizes conversations about self-harm and suicide. And it's funny because we talk about normalize in this negative way. But Antigone, you've touched on the fact that actually maybe there is so much content on social media because we don't talk about suicide feel suicidal and don't necessarily want to first respond to the minute they say that to somebody offline and so it is about that thinking about that kind of safety online and what normalizing means and therefore how we can have those conversations in a much more open honest and broader way across society I think I think that's I think that's so important and that takes us back to the very beginning with chat safe actually which is this is what young people were telling us, is that they use social media to have conversations because they don't feel able to have some of these conversations in the offline worlds. So they use their online environments. And I think it's really challenging and it just brings us back, you know, we talk a lot about what are some of the levers we can use or what are some of the approaches we should be taking to keep social media environments safe for young people. Um, and I think at ChatSafe, we keep coming back to meeting young people where they are providing education and tools and you know that um, equipping young people to keep themselves safe and navigate those spaces in um you know in a careful and supported way I think rather than I know there's kind of legislative levers that keep getting 
um, talked about and Antigone you'll probably go green at the very thought of it but you know um, that we keep talking about but I just keep thinking the more we look at things like legislative levers and, and coming down hard on platforms and, and where young people can talk we're just going to drive young people into darker corners of the internet so they can get away from us and away from restrictions and maybe the approach we have to take is comes back to education and empowerment I'm also kind of terribly mindful of the time and this has just been such a great discussion um, I was just, Mark and I were just having a quick look at the QA and um, I can see that people are asking, are we looking at different forms of diff or different platforms? And, you know, we've worked throughout all of this with Facebook and Instagram who have been, as I say, fantastic partners along the way. People are talking to me about Tumblr and TikTok and it all, in fact, TikTok, I've got a panel coming up after this panel this morning. So people might want to tune into that. Um, Anna, you get a pass out given that it's the middle of the night now for you. Um, but I think it's when we set up ChatSafe, we were very careful to make it platform agnostic. Um, so we were keen that that the guidelines and the content, I suppose, applied to any platform. The approach was really to equip young people to to talk safely online, wherever that might be. And they could take those skills into whatever corner of the Internet they were in. Um, but, yes, we are looking at how we can, um, I suppose, expand our, our online footprint i suppose and where we might go next but you will not see me doing a TikTok dance anytime soon i can assure you of that um any closing comments from any of our panel members before we wrap up i, I mean we did have a bit of a question which is what do people think um the most important thing social media platforms could be doing for suicide prevention going forward um might be interesting would be interesting for, for us um, and might be interesting for you, Antigone, as well, to hear. But also, question to Antigone, maybe, is what can we be doing for you <laughs> to help you keep the platform safe? So if anybody's got any final thoughts before we get booted off the screen. Well, I actually would love to hear, if you do get answers to the to the first question that, you, that you've posed, I, I do think that um, finding opportunities for us to not simply be in, in response to what's perceived as a crisis, but to provide people with opportunities um, that are positive and find ways to, to, be, to be helpful, maybe in, in simply in getting out of the way, but providing people space to do things. I, I'm interested to sort of hear, to hear more about that and, and ideas that this group has. So I, I really would mostly just want to say thank you. For me, this has probably been the, the most that I've learned and the most interesting conversation that I've had, certainly today, and maybe for, for a lot longer than that. Well, that's good to hear. And I have to say, as a you know, as I've said before, and you know, you guys at Facebook have been a fantastic partner in all of this work. And one of the things that the young people that we've worked with have loved is the fact that their views get fed back to Facebook and actually get heard and listened to and sometimes acted on. And that's been it's been important for us, but it's also been super important for the young people. Like we're not just taking their knowledge and doing nothing with it. It actually is translating into that idea of of helping the platforms, you know, create safer environments and helping other young people have a better experience, which perhaps brings us back to the points that people have raised in the chat, which is that benefit of helping others and not just kind of seeking help for yourself. And I think we do know that that can be really therapeutic for people. So we have six seconds. So I just want to really say thank you so much to the panel for your wisdom. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on this ride with me. Um, I'm like, Mark, do you want to co-chair a panel with me? He's like, sure. So thank you so much.
Thanks to everybody for your wisdom and your time. Um, thanks to everybody that's joined us in the in the session today and enjoy the rest of the conference. Anna, please, please go to bed and have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.